0: Hey everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. All right, welcome back everyone. This is Brandon, back here with Brian. Hey everybody. And we're going to have a look at a topic we've kind of flirted around with, but never really sunk our teeth into. This is the day that we, we take a look at ECMO, and um, who better to tell us about it than Kim Boswell. She's an intensivist, um, mainly in the, the surgical ICUs over at the University of Maryland, shock trauma, um, does a lot of work in their lung rescue unit, which is uh, largely an ECMO unit, uh, but also works in their critical care resuscitation unit and some of their other areas. But we're going we're gonna to get into this kind of gnarly topic today, a lot to it, and probably something we can revisit at another time. Um, But we're going to get a taste at least. Brian, you have a case for us?
1: Yeah, so we're going to talk mostly about VV ECMO today, specifically in COVID, but generally as well. So we're going to start off with uh, you are in, uh, I guess, let's say you're in the LRU, and uh, you get a call from the MICU about a patient who's a 36-year-old unvaccinated male with COVID. He has no real other medical history uh, but they're sort of running out of options with him. He is on 100% FiO2. He's paralyzed. He's on epoprostenol. Uh, He's proned. And they can't oxygenate him. His SATs are still in the toilet. Um, so they call and say, hey, we don't know what else to do. Can you put this guy on ECMO? What are, what's your first thought processes with when you get a call like this?
2: Well, um, we initially, we have kind of a... A framework of candidacy that we look at to determine whether or not somebody would benefit from ECMO and would be a good candidate to put on ECMO. And so certainly COVID has um, allowed us the opportunity to restructure that um, framework that we have. And it really addresses things um, like a patient's age, um, their comorbidities, as you pointed out, this gentleman that we're referring to doesn't seem to have any other medical issues um, and we look at kind of the uh, additional things that are impacting the patient at that point um, and that's everything from um, end organ dysfunction but also kind of the resources that the referring facility or for example in this situation our MICU have available to them because um, as we all know not every institution is the same as another and so um It sounds like with this gentleman, he is um, on a pretty significant amount of FiO2 and still not saturating well. They, it sounds like they've proned him and paralyzed him, hopefully, and um, are really optimizing the therapies that uh, are available that we know seem to help these patients. And so kind of... At that point, once you've optimized and done all the things available, um, if the patient is still not doing well and doesn't have any obvious contraindications to ECMO support, we would then kind of consider them a candidate. And um, and so kind of that's how we, we approach the uh, patient or a consult from a f- referring facility. Yeah.
1: Okay, so now I know our, in our center uh, we are full right now of ECMO. we're out of circuits uh, and we have a waiting list that the last time I checked was between two and a half and three times as many patients as we can currently a- accommodate who are waiting. Uh, I assume you guys have seen something similar with this surge in demand, specifically with Delta. Uh, how do you triage you know when you get a call like this, who who gets on the circuit? versus who has to wait?
2: Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's a a really um, difficult question um, that we've kind of encountered. And I would say that last uh, spring, when we were all kind of ramping up and and all of us were preparing for our first surge and experience with COVID, we really expanded our ECMO capabilities here and we created an airlock faci- uh, unit. Basically it was a 16 bed unit that we were double bunking COVID patients in. And uh, one patient in every room was on ECMO. And so at one point in time, we had 16 VV ECMOs running in a single unit. Um, and so we, had the, we also had other COVID patients as well as other just regular medical patients that were requiring other kinds of uh, mechanical support like VA ECMO, for example. And so at one point, we had 28 ECMOs running in the hospital, which is quite a few. Um, at this point, we have scaled back. Um, we were all kind of had a reprieve, I think, um, early uh, this spring from COVID, and now we're seeing our second surge, and we are in a similar situation that you are at your institution where we have, um, we are kind of full essentially. And we are now taking phone calls and similar to you as well, we have a wait list, but um, it's tricky. Um, we, we are kind of looking at it as um, first come, first serve, assuming that the patient uh, meets the criteria and seems like a good candidate. Um, if a ECMO circuit is available and a bed is available. Additionally, as everybody knows, staffing seems to be a major issue nationwide right now. We've been lucky in the Lung Rescue Unit to be able to continue to fully staff our beds, but um, certainly is concerning as well. And to run something like an ECMO circuit, you need a lot of support, and that's not just um, providers, but it's staff, um, staff in the, in the order of perfusionists or ECMO specialists, as well as, um, nursing staff, of course, and techs to help, um, do all of the things that ECMO patients require. So it is a, um, it's a tricky question how we approach that, but, um, we basically just kind of really, um, thoroughly evaluated every, uh, patient that has been referred to us and uh, been pretty careful about selecting those that we think would benefit the most from ECMO and have the best opportunity to survive.
0: What sort of criteria are you using for that? Do you have specific uh, inclusions or exclusions, or it's just kind of your general sense? Or
2: So it's um, last, last spring when we all kind of started into the ECMO world with COVID. Um, we really kind of pared down our criteria a little bit, made it a little bit more strict because we were anticipating running into resource issues and not surprisingly we have, and we did then as well. So we narrowed our age cutoff. Typically in pre-pandemic times, we were considering patients for VV ECMO well, up to the age of 65. We narrowed that back, scale back to about 55 is our upper limit for age. Um, We narrowed our BMI cutoff um, to a BMI of 40. Um, And we really, um, while nothing is a strict or uh, absolute contraindication, excuse me, all of these are relative in nature and we do look at the big picture of the patient. So age, BMI, duration of intubation, certainly with COVID it's seven days, Uh, Pre-pandemic, we would stretch to 10, perhaps. Uh, Additionally, we look at uh, additional uh, evidence of end-organ dysfunction, renal failure, uh, significant vasoactive requirements. We look at how long the patient's been um, experiencing uh, COVID symptoms. And I will tell you, I think that's something that we have begun to look at in the more recently over the past several months and I think that's what we've learned from our first surge in 2020 um, was that patients who have symptoms uh, like kind of a protracted illness where they have several weeks of symptoms and then maybe they're kind of skirting by on high flow and their sats are okay and they're doing self-proning and they've received all the therapies remdesivir steroids and then suddenly just decline uh, I think we have anecdotally felt that those patients decline, in part because they're manifesting signs and symptoms of kind of progressive fibroproliferative disease, and to us, that kind of protracted illness, and then, um, figuratively speaking, they fall off the cliff, is an indication that their their lung damage is much more significant from uh, than than somebody who may really benefit from COVID. Or excuse me,
0: from ECMO. So you want to see people who are under 55? You said not obese, not too many other organs failing, um, less than seven days on the ventilator, and and you know really not too long even off the ventilator if they've uh, if they were off for some time. Um, with I mean within those parameters, do you is there is there too soon? So if someone is requiring a lot of ventilatory support, I mean, they're under seven days, obviously, would you want to wait for some amount of time to make sure to sort of prove they need it? Or is earlier better if they look like they're a candidate? Or
2: So that's a really good question. And I think some of that depends upon where the patient is physically. Um, at an institution like ours, where we have so many resources available to us, and if a patient... Uh, had an abrupt decline we could easily uh, get them on ECMO in a pretty rapid fashion. If a patient seems like they are a pretty good candidate, it seems like they are headed in the direction of needing ECMO support, we will bring them here and perhaps try some kind of more aggressive or um, rescue modes of ventilation, if you'd like to phrase it that way, um, that maybe other facilities, smaller community hospitals don't feel comfortable doing uh, to see if we can avoid uh, them needing ECMO support. So sometimes uh, we'll bring them here, watch them, try uh, some advanced mechanical ventilatory support and see if we can avoid ECMO altogether, but then they're here if they fail those maneuvers and do require support.
1: All right. So uh, as you're looking at this guy, as luck would have it, you have a circuit available and so you decide this guy would be a good candidate and uh, and you're going to you're going to put him on ECMO. Um let's walk through the process of cannulation. Uh is that done primarily by the intensivists, uh set surgeons Uh, Who's doing the cannulation, first of all?
2: Yeah, so um, at our institution, uh, we have uh, predominantly had our cardiac surgery colleagues do the cannulations. Um, We work together as a team. The patient gets brought to the uh, critical care resuscitation unit, and most of our cannulations are done in that particular unit. Uh, The nurses are trained there. They're very familiar uh, with the cannulation process, and it goes very smoothly, so... Um, the cardiac surgeons are the predominant cannulators. Uh, we do have other attendings who are able to cannulate, credentialed to do so. Our trauma attendings often are credentialed, um, and some of our critical care resuscitation unit attendings are also credentialed and can do so if cardiac surgery is unavailable.
1: Okay, so when you when you go to cannulate someone to put them on ECMO, where where are you placing cannulas? Like physically on, on the patient?
2: So our preferred. Uh, sites include the right IJ and the right fem. They seem to be the straightest shot. Um, they're the easiest sites to cannulate overall, I think. Uh, left fem, if needed, uh, is no problem either. Um, we, not, not, I would never say never, but we don't frequently cannulate bifemorally. Uh, we do prefer the right IJ and the right femoral uh, if at all possible those are our preferred sites. We typically do not use a a double lumen catheter like the Avalon, for example. We just find, especially in our COVID patients, we're not able to get the degree of flow uh, that we need to 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 support these patients adequately with that double lumen.
1: Okay. So let's talk about that real quick. Um, For folks who aren't familiar with ECMO and really how everything works, how does cannula site uh, not site how does cannula selection uh influence things like flow
2: well it's um physics i mean at, at its most basic basic explanation right the bigger the bigger the cannula the more flow you can get from the patient basically or for the patient so um when you do a uh Two cannula approach. So you put a cannula in the right IJ um, and your internal jugular is obviously a smaller vessel um, and we put a smaller cannula there um, and that is your inflow, your oxygenated blood return uh, to the patient. The drainage cannula or where the blood is removed from the patient and then sent to the VV ECMO circuit for oxygenation and carbon dioxide removal uh, it tends to be a larger cannula, and if um, if a patient has small vessels from anatomical issues, or if you only use a very a single uh, cannula, like in the IJ, the Avalon, for example, it's, it tends to be a smaller diameter lumen, and therefore you can't get the amount of flow due to resistance and physics um, that you might need to support a patient.
1: Okay, so. We're going we're gonna to put this guy on. We're going to do the IJ and the FEM uh, for our sites. What about anticoagulation? Are you anticoagulating these guys when you put them on the circuit initially?
2: Yeah. So when we, uh, the process of cannulation, we um, give the patient systemic heparin in a bolus form, and that's based on the patient's habitus, as well as maybe perhaps pre-existing anticoagulation that they may have been getting, um and just kind of their overall clinical picture. But generally speaking, they get somewhere between two and 5,000 units of heparin bolus at the time of cannulation. Um, After that, uh, and for more maintenance anticoagulation in these patients, we do anticoagulate them. Our preferred anticoagulant is heparin. Um, And for our patients on VV ECMO, we tend to run them at a PTT goal of about 45 to 55. So not a significant degree of anticoagulation, but um, they definitely warrant anticoagulation being that ECMO is kind of a pro-thrombotic, uh, pro-coagulant uh, kind of
0: therapy. Now, you know, COVID is a primarily respiratory disease, so it would make sense to put people on VV ECMO, but are, are there cases where people need to go on VA ECMO? What are uh, you know times when you might do that? And are there you know pros and cons to doing that?
2: So... At our institution, we have only put one or two patients on VA ECMO that have had COVID. We've been very hesitant to um, consider VA ECMO for these patients. And um, I would say overall, we haven't needed to put these patients, our COVID patients, on VA ECMO. Uh, I think we have all seen our COVID patients have some degree of, of kind of surprisingly a predominant right ventricular dysfunction if they manifest any sort of cardiac dysfunction at all that we could attribute to COVID. Uh, But overall, I think we haven't really had that need to do that. Um, And I can't, uh, I think in fact, if a patient has hemodynamics suggestive that they may need the cardiac support as well, we would consider that almost a contraindication to cannulating them because it's an indication of it, like additional end organ dysfunction in the setting of COVID.
0: So if they just have kind of mild, mild, moderate-ish RV dysfunction, you would prefer to put them on VV and just kind of use that to support their heart?
2: Absolutely. And, you know, we do alternative things as well, like the use of inhaled um, So to help... Uh, reduce right heart afterload by pulmonary vasodilation. We use inotropic support for patients who have evidence of RV or LV dysfunction as well. Uh, We aggressively diurese many of our patients who come to us uh, and require VV ECMO. Um, Understandably so, they're very sick, and a lot of our referring facilities will end up supporting them and giving them fluid, and they end up fluid overloaded, which only contributes to their respiratory distress, unfortunately. So we will often cannulate patients and then start the diuretic process pretty rapidly, especially if they have evidence of RV dysfunction.
0: Is there a downside to doing VA?
2: Um, is there a downside? That's a good question. There's probably not a downside. We run our VA ECMOs at a higher anticoagulation goal with a PTT of like 60 to 80. And I am sure that we have all experienced kind of the coagulopathy, for lack of a better way to put it, um, of COVID. I don't know. We, we have seen so many patients bleed uh, from even very mild heparin um simple procedures like uh, bedside per- percutaneous tracheostomies that go beautifully and smoothly, look good, are dry after the procedure. And then hours later, they'll just start bleeding for no reason. Um, some of them have been life-threatening bleeds and not necessarily from their tracheostomy, but from other places, GI blades, things like that. Um, but it's kind of an almost inexplicable coagulopathic state that I don't think that we fully understand. But it seems to be very unique to COVID.
1: Yeah. So going back to the right heart dysfunction, would you guys consider something like an oxy like a protect Duo ca- catheter or a cannula rather, um, not quite VA, but uh, a little bit of right heart support.
2: Yeah. So um, it's something to consider. We haven't used them a lot here at this institution. Um, I think we've done one or two, but I, I, it's something to consider certainly in the future. And we, when, when the pandemic began and we ended up purchasing um, additional circuits, it's something that we talked about. Um, I'm not sure... I think even with our big cannulas and the dual cannula approach, we have found that some of our COVID patients just have such profound ARDS that even with high flows, six, six and a half, se- like almost seven liters in some of our patients of flow, we're still not able to adequately oxygenate them, Which is which is kind of, it's mind-blowing to be honest, because pre-pandemic, it seemed that many of our ARDS patients, even the sickest ones, you could support adequately with four and a half, five liters of flow and their SATs would be okay. So I think COVID is a very different um, pathologic process and I, I would be concerned, uh, but that's, this is an ignorant kind of statement. Having never used the Protect Dual. I don't know. I'm not sure that they would be able to get enough flow um, to support the sick COVID patients.
1: Gotcha. Okay. Um, Now you mentioned that you use heparin for your systemic anticoagulation. Do you ever use uh, other agents like bivalirudin or are you mainly heparin until uh, uh, an issue comes up?
2: Absolutely. Yes. We uh, typically, our go-to is heparin and everybody gets heparin until an issue uh, like thrombocytopenia concerning for heparin-induced thrombocytopenia comes up. And then we will definitely transition to bivalrudin.
1: Okay. Now, pre-COVID, were you uh, anticoagulating all your VV patients?
2: Yeah, we were. We would occasionally have the patient uh, who would have recurrent concerning bleeding. You know, we would start the heparin and titrate it slowly, and they would just hemorrhage for whatever reason. And um and so we've had many patients that have s- gone through a great majority of their ECMO course without any sort of anticoagulation just because they've demonstrated repeatedly that they don't tolerate it well and so um we do it is our it is our go to it is our standard to anticoagulate these patients but we will run them off heparin if we need to
1: okay um, all right. So you, you get this guy, you get him cannulated. He's on on the circuit now. What are, what are you starting at? What are your sort of starting settings?
2: Yeah. So, um, well, all of our patients are on 100% on the ECMO circuit with respect to their FiO2. Uh, at this institution, we don't really titrate the FiO2 on the ECMO circuit. Um, we can supplement the FiO2 the, if they need it um, with the ventilator uh, but generally speaking they all run at 100% FiO2 on their ECMO circuit. Their sweep is determined by uh, the degree of hypercarbia that they have on their ABGs pre-cannulation We trend ABGs relatively closely, and if they are profoundly hypercarbic, we definitely do our best to slowly correct their hypercarbia after cannulation. We don't like any large swings, so over the course of the following, I don't know, six to eight hours, we'll correct their hypercarbia if they're really high. Um, So the sweep is determined based on their PCO2 values. We look at flow based on uh, the size of the patient. Um, And we generally like to flow our patients, almost regardless of their size, at least around four liters per minute. If patients uh, due to hypoxia need more flow, we will certainly uh, ramp that up if we're able to. Um, Maintaining an RPM on the ECMO circuit less than 4,000. That's our goal. Many of our patients are able to tolerate and need flows of six liters, six and a half liters of flow, um, and we're able to get that, fortunately. Uh, so that's kind of where we start. We moving kind of towards the ventilator after we cannulate a patient. Um, we have what we call l- our lung rest settings here, and we. Uh, similarly to the way we walk back somebody's PCO2, we try and walk back their vent settings. So many of our patients come to us um, in extremis and on incredibly high amounts of vent support, and we don't want to completely collapse down their lungs right away. So we walk back the degree of, of APRV or uh, PRVC, the pressures they're on, slowly over the first several hours.
1: Now, this guy was on um before, Cannulation. Would you continue that, and if so, how would you decide to adjust that?
2: Yeah. So, <clears throat> good question. We definitely use a lot of inhaled epoprostenol here. Um, we do a weight-based approach um, to our dosing, and the ter- the factors that determine whether or not we keep it or we wean it uh, typically are the RV dysfunction. Um, pre-pandemic, we would use it in many of our ARDS patients, almost regardless of the presence or absence of um, cardiac dysfunction. But um, during the pandemic, we really looked at the utility of it and whether or not patients without RV dysfunction really had any sort of beneficial aspect to continuing eupoprostanol. And we decided that we would use it almost predominantly in patients with RV dysfunction. If they didn't demonstrate any evidence of RV dysfunction, either on bedside ultrasound or formal echo, uh, then we would consider weaning that as well.
1: And and what about sedation? So this guy obviously was deeply sedated. He was paralyzed. Uh, Are you leaving him deeply sedated? Um, Are you leaving him paralyzed after he's cannulated? Or how's that how's how are you managing that
2: yeah so that's a this is another area that we've kind of seen some evolution in our own practice um since the pandemic began last last spring um i think we all were kind of taken aback by the amount of sedation that our initial covid patients required to keep them calm and synchronous with the ventilator um and so we Um, individualize kind of our therapy here. Um, I think the majority of our patients who end up cannulated with COVID ARDS, we tend to go directly to proning. And so uh, for the most part, I think the inclination is to continue the paralytic um, and the sedation in order to help facilitate synchrony with the ventilator. Um, as well as optimize our ability to prone them um, and um, help out their oxygenation as much as possible. The caveat, I think, for us uh, to that specifically is um, we have kind of transitioned to more of a what we call partial paralysis uh, philosophy here where instead of completely paralyzing a patient, we will titrate their paralytic drip to essentially a respiratory rate. So we allow the patient to breathe as long as they're not tachypnic and as long as they're not dyssynchronous with the ventilator. And so we'll tolerate respiratory rates of 20 maybe low low 20s we want them to be safe and not have any sort of uh, ventilator induced lung injury right which is why we drop them to rest settings but we also don't want them to have any of the patient induced uh, lung injury that we are kind of believing exists with this
0: so would you prone even if you have been successful in weaning the ventilator to not very aggressive settings
2: Absolutely. And um, kind of regardless of the patient, we will wean to, to lung rest settings because our philosophy here is that we cannulate you uh, to prevent any ongoing ventilator injury, any peak pressures that are in the 40s, 50s, whatever it might be. Um, and so we definitely try and get you get all, all patients on VVACMO to lung rest settings and um, and then prone to help with the disease process. Mo- many of them are very, very consolidated and proning really helps that. And it also uh, improves our ability to do uh, fairly aggressive chest physiotherapy as well.
0: How long do you uh, uh, continue their course of proning?
2: So our practice has been um, to do our first session of proning for eight hours and that uh, is shorter than the other uh, sessions, and we do that specifically to ensure that, number one, it's tolerated uh, by the patient, and number two, that they don't have any significant skin breakdown when we turn them back over after that first eight hours. Um, The remaining sessions we do, we typically do five sessions um, in a row, and we do eight hours for the first session, and then 16 hours for the following four sessions. I will tell you that we have proned patients many, many, many more times than those five sessions, our patients with COVID, um, and some of them will um, complete a five-session uh, period of proning, and then a week later, we may start proning them again because they start to look like they're consolidating again and have what we consider pronable disease. And
0: you said long rest settings. What does that look like for you? What's their end point of weeding the ventilator?
2: Yeah, so... Um, pre-pandemic, we used to do pressure control of 10 um, and a PEEP of 10, so a total pressure of 20 with a delta of 10, and then a respiratory rate of 10. Um, so we just say kind of 10, 10, and 10. Um, those are our long rest settings. With COVID, and uh, in part due to the pretty significant consolidation we've seen with um, their imaging, Uh, We have kind of manipulated those lung rest settings uh, where we may do a pressure control of 15 over a PEEP of 15. Um, So still maintaining that delta or that driving pressure of 10 um, with a total pressure no higher than 25. Um, But we do that to kind of help maintain some degree of recruitment and try and keep those... Um, last remaining alveoli that may not be completely collapsed and consolidated open. Um, but so we've seen some variation with COVID in our, what we consider our lung rest settings, but traditionally it's a pressure control of 10 or a peep of 10 and a rate of 10.
0: 15 over 15 is interesting. Cause I, I mean, that, that's not, doesn't seem like dramatically less than a, a, a patient might be on anyway, maybe not a, a really severely, you know, covid ARDS patient, but, um, it seemed like going even lower on your pressures might be more lung protective, but what you feel like if you do, then the whole lung is just going to collapse and you're going to have trouble getting it open later.
2: Yeah. And I think, um, we've seen that a lot of the COVID patients respond nicely to peep. Um, and as long as they don't have any findings of pneumothorax or pneumomediastinum, we, um, want to continue to give them that little bit higher support with PEEP of 15. Um, sometimes we'll titrate that down. Um, but yeah, a total pressure of, of 25. So it's a pressure control of 10 above a PEEP of 15. Okay. And also, I guess we also take into account the patient's habitus, right? So if they have a very uh, big chest wall, um, sometimes a little extra PEEP can help kind of Combat the weight of that chest wall on their on their interthoracic pressure, basically.
1: Now you mentioned um, sort of aggressive diuresis with uh, these folks because a lot of them are pretty severely overloaded. Probably by the time they get to you, um, are, how how are you handling diuresis? First of all, are you intermittent doses of something like furosemide, or um, doing more infusions. We,
2: um, I would say our practices if definitely favors the intermittent dosing assuming a patient's renal function is okay and that they respond to those intermittent boluses if we find that we're giving a very substantial amount of lasix bolus over the course of you know like 3 or 4 doses a day in order to, to get them to get to a negative status fluid balance wise then we will occasionally put them on a lasix drip um, and and try and encourage them that way Um, occasionally we'll use a hemoconcentrator to help, um, do it. Uh, but I think we find that a LASIK strip is almost a more gentle approach to diuresis, um, over time rather than a hemoconcentrator.
1: Okay. And with this aggressive diuresis, are you having, ever having flow problems?
2: Yeah. Yeah, we do. Um, and we use that as feedback to us that intravascularly speaking, the patient is, is not, um, or we've kind of reached our goal from an intravascular perspective. Now, the big picture, the patient is still total body fluid overloaded. So they just need some time to reaccumulate that intravascular volume. And they, they definitely do. Um, and so we'll slow our diuresis efforts perhaps for a day um, and then kind of try and pick back up. But we use that definitely as, as feedback from the patients to help us guide our therapy.
1: Okay. Is there a role for albumin in that, Uh, sort of a push-pull along with the Lasix? So, gosh, that's
2: such a uh, funny question. It's a a great question. And I think you'll get a million different perspectives about the utility of using colloid versus crystalloid as a volume expander and to do that push-pull. Uh, personally, I am a fan of the push-pull, uh, especially in patients who you may be having some um, intravascular evidence of volume depletion, but very much total body overloaded. Still, um, I think you know doing 24 hours of every six-hour dosing of albumin really can facilitate the diuresis effect and really potentiate the the Lasix that you give them. So. Um, I'm a fan. Some of my colleagues do not feel that there's any difference in giving colloid versus giving crystalloid. So I think that's a very kind of personal approach to things um, and the way that you treat the patient. Certainly if a patient has a very normal albumin, an albumin of four, um, I guess you could question the utility of giving them additional protein because in theory, Um, they have a relatively normal albumin value and shouldn't be necessarily third spacing to the degree that somebody with a very low albumin might.
1: So when you're giving albumin, are you giving 5% or 25%?
2: Um, We give both. Um, I think if a patient seems to need more volume, like they're hypotensive, we'll give the 5% at a higher volume. Uh, Mm -hmm. But if we're really trying to be volume sparing and just expand them to help diurese them will give smaller volumes of 25%.
1: Um, So we've got this guy on the circuit and and everything's kind of going well. Um, How aggressive are you guys being with tracheostomy on these folks?
2: In the beginning, we were being very, very aggressive about it, trying to get patients because we we knew that they were going to be on ECMO for a prolonged period of time, and we were committed to that and wanted to facilitate um, kind of a multifactorial approach, comfort for the patient, ability to wean sedation hopefully much more quickly. and then overall, just safety for the patients. Um, I think we found that they had so many bleeding complications um, that we would kind of stave it off a little bit more. Uh, and we do at this point. Um, we, I think, end up traking the great majority of our patients. Uh, we've had several that have just persistently been too sick and required way too much uh, pressure on the ventilator to even consider treating them safely because they need that pressure in addition to the full support of the ECMO circuit. But overall, I think we're trying to treat these patients within within two weeks, but we don't rush to do it in the, within the first week like we were initially during the, when the pandemic started.
1: Okay. So things are going along and you notice that he's becoming more and more tachycardic Heart rate is going up into the one teens, one twenties, even one thirties at times. Sinus tach. Um, you know, you look at his heart with the echo; it seems to be just a pretty normal uh, function. He's just tachycardic, uh, and you notice that he's kind of desaturating along with it. Um, is this a complication from the ECMO? Is this a problem with the ECMO circuit? Is this a problem with him? Um, what do you think's going on here?
2: Well, I think a couple things. If you are confident and comfortable that his heart is functioning well, um, I think you have to address where the tachycardia is coming from. Is it pain or sedation related? Can you optimize that to help control him? Does he need volume? Um, uh, Is he hypovolemic basically? And is that why he's desaturating? Are you having flow issues with your ECMO circuit? Are these things that Um, you can address relatively easily and in a straightforward fashion. If everything seems okay with your ECMO circuit and you just have tachycardia associated with desaturations, the patient's sedated and comfortable, all the things otherwise check off okay. Um, One of the things that um, is important to recognize that uh, in your patients who are pretty tachycardic um, and develop refractory hypoxemia, is that sometimes um, if you control their heart rate, you can capture more of their cardiac output and allow the ECMO circuit to do a better job of oxygenating them. Um, And so basically driving their heart rate down with the use of beta beta blockers can improve their oxygenation overall.
1: So kind of talk a little bit more about that and what's going on there in that case with this guy's Tachycardia. why is that causing shunt like this to, for folks who, who maybe have never encountered this with ECMO?
2: So the idea of the ECMO circuit is that um, you are circulating blood through the circuit to oxygenate the blood through the membrane, as well as remove carbon dioxide. Um, and I think the most basic way to look at it is that you do that, best, most optimally, when the patient's cardiac output is relatively normal. When somebody's heart rate drives up into the 130s, 140s, when their cardiac output increases dramatically, you can start to, um, for lack of a better way to say it, miss some of that cardiac output as the blood is going through the ECMO circuit. And that blood is, is crossing through the very diseased and very dysfunctional pulmonary bed of the patient, right? And it's not getting oxygenated and it's not getting carbon dioxide removal passing through the pulmonary bed of the patient at such a high output. And so if you're able to slow down the patient's heart and thereby bring down their cardiac output, you allow more of the blood to effectively circulate through the ECMO circuit and be oxygenated and uh, the CO2 to be removed more effectively and efficiently.
1: Yeah. So you're, so you're basically, your cardiac output is competing with your flow on the ECMO circuit. Yes. And, and you want the ECMO to win.
2: Yes. So. Yes. You want, <laughs> you, you want their output to go through the ECMO circuit more effectively um, than through their, their pulmonary bed.
1: Gotcha. So you mentioned um, if you're confident that the ECMO circuit is working well, how do you troubleshoot the, the ECMO circuit to make sure there's not a problem with the circuit or the oxygenator um, or anything like that?
2: So determining the functionality of your oxygenator, right? It was kind of like the workhorse of it's the purpose of the ECMO circuit. Um, you want to take a visual inspection of it first and foremost. Um, these patients, we anticoagulate them because the oxygenator, the candulas, all of that are essentially foreign bodies and are nituses to develop clot. And inevitably, your oxygenator, even despite good anticoagulation, will develop some degree of fibrin or thrombus formation. And so you want to look at both the venous side and the arterial side or the pre-oxygenation side and the post-oxygenation side. Um, of the oxygenator and look to see how much clot or fibrin you have. Um, that, if it's filled with clot or lots of fibrin stranding, um, you might want to consider changing that. We look at this in a kind of a big picture way with multiple pieces of data, and it look, it's not just the visual inspection, but we look at a patient's LDH on a daily basis, And to determine more of a trend necessarily than a specific isolated number, we look at a patient's hemoglobin to determine, and platelet count to determine if they're lysing their cells, which often happens with more and more clot in the oxygenator. Um, And we look at something called a plasma-free hemoglobin, which is a um, kind of a a reflection of how many cells are being lysed and releasing their hemoglobin into the plasma, um, hence the term plasma-free hemoglobin. So all of these numbers we look at on a daily basis to determine the functionality um, and the efficiency of the ECMO circuit, specifically the oxygenator. Um, if these numbers trend in the wrong direction or if the patient is having increasing difficulty maintaining oxygenation um, and we're, we can't come up with another very good reason why, we'll consider changing out the oxygenator to improve um, its its function.
1: Are you, do you guys monitor pre- and post-oxygenator gases?
2: We do. So we don't typically do pre-oxygenator gases um, on a regular basis. We will monitor what we call our arterial ECMO gas, our post-oxygenator gas, on a, a daily basis. Um, and as the PaO2 on the ECMO arterial gas tends to trend down with time or with increasing fibrin and clot deposition on the oxygenator, um, certainly that's another indicator for us to consider changing the oxygenator to uh, improve its efficiency.
1: Uh, now, you mentioned uh, checking hemoglobin and uh, hematocrit and stuff. What is the role of blood transfusion? in uh, these folks, are you transfusing the same goals that we would think of normally, like seven and 21, or are you shooting for higher, higher hematocrits?
2: Typically in our patients, we shoot for standard goals, seven and 21 are kind of our thresholds. There are exceptions to that. Excuse me, of course, any patient who's bleeding, we will push those goals a little bit higher just to stay ahead. Um, additionally, any patient who has significant refractory hypoxemia, where we feel like we've maximized everything else we can maximize on them. We've increased flows on the ECMO circuit to the point where we feel like we can't go any higher, uh, where we have manipulated the ventilator in these patients to give them the optimal FiO2 and perhaps even increase their PEEP or their total pressure overall. Um... And if they continue to be hypoxemic we will often transfuse them up to a higher hemoglobin goal just to give them a little bit more oxygen carrying capacity
1: um you mentioned earlier that we we know these folks are in for a long run on ecmo what what should people be prepared for when you put somebody on ecmo how long can we expect that they're likely to be on the circuit
2: I think we tend to look at these patients as our marathon patients. Um, we think probably minimum a month, minimum, and then more likely the order of two to four months. Um, I, think, I think our longest COVID ECMO patient has been on for about uh, four, four and a half months uh, before decannulation. So it's definitely a marathon, not a sprint. And we try and have those conversations early with the families so that they have an understanding of kind of what they're in for. Um, so yeah, we, we don't we don't cannulate anybody with the optimism that they're gonna get off within a week or two. So
1: And imagine that carries a pretty significant um sequela of, you know prolonged bed rest and uh, even paralysis and prolonged sedation are you guys seeing a lot of like post-intensive care syndrome type stuff with these folks
2: yeah i think it's definitely a real thing um i think we've used a lot more paralytic in these patients because they have this really remarkable Respiratory drive, and they get very dysynchronous, and so a lot of our patients have developed pretty significant um, myopathy of critical illness, unfortunately. Um, and they're with us for a long time, and in the patients that we have had come back and, and talk with us and um, kind of relive a lot of their experiences, um, they definitely, you know, they hear the sounds at night, at all, like all the time, and they. Uh, yeah they're very anxious at times with it and it's a it's a real thing we have a an outpatient covid clinic for all of our patients who um, survive and and come yeah. back for follow-up care yeah. and pulmonary function tests and and the psychological effects are definitely at the forefront of those visits as well
1: so how do you approach weaning this so, like this guy's been on for a few months now at this point Uh, how do you approach weaning the ECMO?
2: Yeah, so the weaning aspect is very similar to our pre-pandemic kind of -of run-of-the-mill ARDS. Um, We try and ensure before we even really consider weaning that the patients at pretty low vent settings, you know, or ideally at those what we call lung rest settings here, because we want to Um, really ensure that they're in a good place from event perspective before we even consider taking them off ECMO. Um, Our next step are to continue to wean the sweep and monitor um, their pulmonary compliance um, and oxygenation, of course. And then as their sweep comes down, um, we... Assuming all else comes together. They're on minimal sedation and hopefully interactive by the point somebody's been on ECMO for many months and Even more hopefully they're walking and rehabbing actively Um, So once their sweep is weaned and their event settings are relatively low um, We kind of take the plunge and if their blood gas is looking good We will begin what we call recirculation, which is essentially just removal of the sweep gas and the oxygenation. Um, And it's sort of basically just um, using the ECMO as um, a circuit to run their blood. It doesn't do any of the work that the patient's lungs do um, while they're recirculating. So we, with COVID, um, have very much extended our recirculation period. We used to do about 24 hours pre-pandemic and now with COVID we will recirculate a patient for 72 hours before we uh, decannulate them. Uh, We want to be pretty darn sure that they're going to be good to go once we remove those cannulas and that they're not going to have any uh, backslide that we can kind of foresee and perhaps prevent by just putting them back on the ECMO circuit and doing some more therapy and working with them. So we wanna optimize them as best as possible.
1: Are you finding that that happens frequently, 24 hours of recirculation and then they need to go back up?
2: Um, we've had definitely a handful of patients that look really good for the first 24 hours and then for whatever reason they become tachypnic or hypoxic and just ultimately fail their research trial and require typically pretty low amounts of sweep um, to kind of support them. So um, while I don't think it's a huge number of patients. I think that those patients who fail after twenty four hours would not have been okay if we hadn't extended that recirculation trial for seventy two hours.
1: So, presuming this guy does well, seventy two hours of recirculation and he's still looking good. You're going to decannulate him. Uh, are you decannulating folks in the unit, or are you going to the OR for that? Or
2: nope, we do it at the bedside. Um, it's, it takes about ten minutes, and uh, and then they're free. <laughs>
1: And then I imagine they continue. Um, they continue to be an ICU patient, uh, but just a normal ICU patient at this point.
2: Yeah. So, in an ideal world, um, if they're on those lung rest settings, um, and the vast majority of them are treated um after they're decannulated we really uh, push them to get off the ventilator as quickly as possible so many of them like i indicated have uh, myopathy of critical illness and that also applies obviously to their intercostal and diaphragmatic muscles as well they're just very weak but um we really focus on aggressive physical therapy and rehab and um, tend to try and get them off the vent as quickly as possible. And sometimes that doesn't take nearly as long as as we uh, think it might. So um, they are in the unit for at least uh, another 24 hours um, post decannulation, they're in the LRU I should say. And then after that, we often get them to the medical ICU um, or another ICU if it's more appropriate um, to help continue on their vent rehab.
1: Well, um, I think this has been a really good discussion. Brandon, do you have anything else?
0: I guess what I'm just wondering, and I I imagine there's not much data on this, or maybe you do have data, but at least anecdotally, where are you at on this therapy? ECMO for for COVID, uh, ARDS. I mean, ECMO for ARDS in general has still been kind of finding its place in our armamentarium, and the evidence has been a little here and there. Um, but you know, for COVID in particular, I mean, do, do you think that this is, this is showing itself to have value? Does it seem like it's you know, causing some inflection in the course of this illness, or it, it seems like maybe in s- certain patients, there's a good response and not in others, or are you getting a a little less optimistic about the utility of it, or where are you at now? I mean, we're what a year and a half into this now. I don't know how many patients you've run through this, but certainly been a, at least a reasonable number. Um, do you have some sense for where it's going?
2: Yeah. Um, gosh, it's a uh, it's crazy. I mean, since this started a year and a half ago, we've done uh, probably well for sure the most COVID ECMO in the country here. And, um, I have my days where I think it's, it's great. And I have my days where I think, gosh, what are we doing? I'm not sure this is making a difference at all. And these poor patients, you know, even if they get off ECMO are going to have, they're going to be pulmonary cripples. They're going to, they're going to live on oxygen and they're going to, you know, not be able to get to the bathroom without being hypoxic and, um, I think the good days far outnumber those bad days. And I think we've seen a lot of patients come back and have been doing okay. Um, are they back to where they were before they got sick? No, but a lot of them are not requiring oxygen and getting around and taking care of their kids and, and, um, and getting out and looking and, and feeling well overall. So I think that, um, there's not a ton of data. Our survival rate here is, is upwards of 65 to 70% on VV for COVID, um, which is pretty reasonable. And I think the majority of those patients do very well physically. Um, the The long haul, it's a long haul to get back to where they were, but um, I think that um, they do well. And so I think I would fall on the side of advocating for ECMO in this disease process. Um, And as you kind of indicated or suggested, there's just really not a ton of data yet to support whether or not this is a truly effective therapy and should be continued um, to be offered to COVID patients with profound ARDS. But today I would say yes.
0: So if the resources were available, you would, like to see it being used a little more in more patients maybe a little earlier.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think um I think it's also hard because COVID is a very um fibroproliferative fibrotic kind of disease process. I think more so than many of the other causes of ARDS and it's hard to know who's going to develop that profound uh fibrosis, but um, I think if you can get them through their course, even if they get decannulated and um, are able to get out of the ICU, um, I think that that's that's a a, ha- a hash in the in the win column.
0: Do you have anyone who didn't die on ECMO but also was unable to be weaned?
2: We've had a few who have been. Um, kind of those profound pulmonary cripples, I think that we have identified several of those people that we knew were not going to get better, and we evaluated them for lung
0: transplant. So there is at least a a sort of possible pathway here for quasi-stabilizing people whose lungs maybe have become more fibrotic and are just not going to recover anymore, but potentially could be transplanted?
2: I think so, yeah. And I mean, of course, there's a whole ethical debate about that. And um, and certainly cannulating somebody for transplant evaluation is, is kind of a, it's a risky endeavor. Um, but um, so it's something. It's definitely something to consider, um, especially in young people. So,
1: All right. Well, uh, I think with that, we'll bring our conversation to a close. Uh, thanks so much for coming on and, uh, and talking about this with us.
2: Absolutely. I appreciate your time and uh, thank you for inviting me.
1: Uh, well, on behalf of Brandon and myself, well, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. As always, uh, the opinions expressed on the podcast are those of the participants only, and not our respective uh, institutional affiliations. And uh, this shouldn't be construed as medical advice; it's educational only. And hopefully, this isn't your sole source of information uh, for managing your patients. Thanks a lot.